We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. reading from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, thank you that you see and know every single person that's in this room and that none of us are here by accident whether this is something we do regularly maybe even every week or whether it's the first time in a long time or maybe it's the first time ever but we are here and we're here because you have brought us here and we need to hear what it is that you have to say to us would you help us to believe that every word from you is for our good, that it is for our flourishing. So we ask that you would come and speak into our lives now, that you would meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning, full of faith or full of doubt, full of joy, full of sorrow, full of despair, full of tears, full of loneliness, wherever we are this morning, Lord, meet us there and speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are beginning our our Christmas series, our Advent series, and we're going to be looking at this over the next four weeks, and we're calling it Longing. Uh, Human beings are creatures of longing. In, In 1977, NASA, which is the year I was born, actually, Go 1977. NASA, that's not the point of the story. Uh, In 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 into outer space. And the purpose of these uh, was to explore the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Is anyone or anything else out there? And Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are still floating around in outer space today. And included in each of these uh, spacecrafts is a record player and a record, actually. 
that NASA created. And the contents on that record were meant to communicate a story of our world to anyone out there in the universe who might find it and listen to it. And that record has all sorts of sounds on it, like wind and waves and thunder and lightning and fire and a gazillion animals. But I, I think the most interesting, interesting thing on that record is actually a piece by Beethoven. Uh, it's a piece called Opus 130. And the person who was really kind of the lead person responsible for whatever went on this record, she was leading the, the team, was a woman named Annie Druin. And in 2019, she was reflecting on why they chose what they chose to go on this record. And this is what she said. She said, as soon as they told me that the contents of this record would last a thousand million years, I thought of this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin of his original notes the word Sehnsucht. It is the German word for longing. Part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing that we all feel. Now just think about that for a moment. When, when NASA's scientists sent a message to the universe describing who we are and what we are as human beings, that message was essentially this. Human beings are creatures of longing. Longing. I mean, now why is this a Christmas series, by the way? I mean, isn't Christmas about parties and presents and family and Mariah Carey's Christmas album and chestnuts roasting on an open fire? That's actually what we've made it out to be, but, but Christmas, according to the Bible, is about so much more. Christmas is about the fulfillment of our deepest longings. We actually sang about it this morning in the very first song. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Christmas is about our deepest hopes, our deepest desires, our deepest longings that every single person in this room has, and how Jesus alone can actually fulfill them. Now let me tell you why this is good news. It's good news because one of the reasons that Christmas can be so hard for so many people is that there's kind of a lot of pressure to be happy. You ever feel that? I mean, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Like, that's literally what we sing. But what if it's not? What if it's not always the most wonderful time of the year? What if you don't feel happy? What if this year you have experienced pain and loss, or loneliness, or suffering, or sickness? What if there have been a lot of tears for you this year? There have been a lot of tears for a lot of people over the last 18 months. What if you don't feel happy? In fact, what if, what if when Christmas comes around, you, you have these kind of fleeting moments of of joy and kind of enjoying the season, but like the sorrow is just kind of always seeping through the cracks. It just always feels right below the surface. 
If you are at all in touch with your life and with this world, that is exactly how you'll feel. And you see, this series is going to be like oxygen for us. Because here's what it's going to show us. Christmas is not for happy people. Christmas is for hungry people. It is for people who feel that despite all of the good things there are to enjoy at Christmas, and no matter how good your life might be right now, that something is still missing. That no matter how good things are, they are still not good enough. Christmas is for people who have a deep sense of ache and of disappointment and of unmet expectations in life. It is for people who long to be filled. It is for people like you and me. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four longings, really. Four of our deepest longings. Our longing for hope, that's next week. Our longing for peace, that's two weeks. And then our our longing for joy. But today, we're going to be looking at our longing for love. And I would make the claim to you that there is nothing we long for more than to know that we're loved. Victor Hugo once said, he said, the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. And what Christmas says is there's a love available to you that you will find nowhere else. So let's let's talk about this longing for love this morning. This passage is going to tell us three things. Where this longing comes from, how we try to satisfy it unsuccessfully, and why only Christmas can satisfy it. And the passage actually breaks down pretty nicely. So so where does it come from? That's verses 1 through 4. How we try to satisfy it, this is verses 5 through 11. And then why only Christmas can is verses 12 through 14. So first, where does it come from? Why do we even have this longing? I mean, that's an important question. All of us have it. You know, know, uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're just exploring Christianity, we are so glad that you're here. One of the things that I really try to say a lot to people who are in your shoes is one of the main questions you ought to be asking as you are trying to figure out if, 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 if this stuff is true is not just, does Christianity make sense to me? Now, that's an important question, but it's not the only one. Because the other question is, does Christianity make sense of me? Does it make sense of why I am the way that I am and why the world is the way that it is? See, why is this longing so universal? Why does it span across every person from every type of culture throughout every point in history? And John actually tells us the answer to that question in verse 1. Look at the passage. He says, In the beginning, okay, pause, in the beginning, if those words don't sound familiar to you, they were very familiar to John's readers. These are the very first words in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is being very purposeful here with using that phrase. That's like a stick of dynamite, in the beginning. Now, in Genesis 1, the phrase in the beginning takes us all the way back to creation. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, the phrase in the beginning takes us back even further. It takes us back before creation because John goes on. He says, in the beginning was the Word. 
And you say, well, what's the word? It's not a what. It's a who. Because look at verse 14. John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. Now, John is making this radical claim about the deity of Jesus. If you come here this morning and you say, you know what? I, I love, I, I kind of, I like the Bible. I like the teachings of Jesus. But wh where does it ever say that Jesus is God? Because I'm all in on Jesus as a teacher or kind of a helpful guru. But what about all this deity stuff? Right here, John chapter 1, verse 1. And then basically every other page in the New Testament. In the beginning was the word. John is saying that before the world was ever created... Jesus existed. See, John is, is taking us back not just to creation, but before creation. Now, what was Jesus doing before the world was created? Have you ever asked yourself that? What was he doing? And John tells us. He says, and the word was with God. Now, wait a minute. Isn't the word God? Like, I thought, the, how can the word be with God if the word is God. If, if Jesus is God, how can he be with God? It's very interesting. This, this little preposition with is the answer to this big question that we are asking about where, do, where does this longing for love come from? The, the reason that Jesus could be both with God and God is because God is a community. And John is pointing us right here at the very beginning of his book to the Trinity. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Now only Christianity says that God is a community. There are a lot of other, not a lot, but there are a handful of other major monotheistic religions. Judaism, Islam, other religions that say God is one, but only Christianity says God is not just one, but he is three in one. And Christianity has always made a big deal out of this. It has always made a big deal out of the Trinity. In fact, Athanasius, he was a pastor in the fourth century in Egypt. Uh, he was a pastor, he had the same job for 46 years. That's quite a run. I'm probably not going to be at this church in 46 years. No plans to leave. I love this church. But people are probably going to get tired of me after, you know, a much shorter time than that. So 46 years, like that's a long run. And here's what's interesting about Athanasius was that he faced immense persecution. He was, he was exiled and he was brought back five times. And it all revolved around his uncompromising commitment to the Trinity. He, he wrote a book about the Trinity and then they kicked him out. And then he came back. And then he wrote a song about the Trinity. And then they kicked him out. And then he came back again and he wrote another book about the Trinity. They kept kicking him out and he kept coming back until the early Christians finally named a creed after him. It was called the Athanasian Creed. And it was all about the Trinity. Now, why was Athanasius so committed to the doctrine of the Trinity? And, and here's an even better question. Why have Christians for the last 2,000 years been so committed to the idea of the Trinity? The answer is because it is foundational not only to our understanding of who God is, but to our understanding of who we are and of why we are the way that we are and of why we have this longing 
for love. See, the Trinity means that God is not just a community, but he is a community of love. What was Jesus doing before creation? He was enjoying a love relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. See, God was not alone before he created the world. No, there was, a, there was a party. And God created us out of, not out of his loneliness, but out of the fullness of his love. And he created you and me to enter into that love. And that's actually what makes sense of why every single person that had been born into this world has this deep longing for love. We were made for it. We were made by a community of love and we were made for that love. Which brings us to this second question. We have this longing, we all feel it, and we have all sorts of ways that we try to go about satisfying it. This passage tells us really kind of the two main ones, neither of which work. And the first is this, one way to know that you were loved is to look inside yourself. You know, we say, it doesn't matter what other people think of me, All that matters is is what I think of me. All that matters is I love and accept myself just the way that I am. Now that is basically what all of modern culture says. But if, if you really think about it for even a second, it does not work. It doesn't work for several reasons. For one, we are entirely dependent on what other people think of us. We actually need verdicts of love and affirmation from the outside. We're born needing it. I mean, psychologists will tell you that any child who is not raised surrounded by people who are speaking words of love and affirmation in their life, that it does long-term harm to them. We, we, We are so desperate for voices, external voices of affirmation and love. I'll give you another example of this, you know, is, is modern therapy, actually. Uh, and I'm a big fan of therapy. I've, I've seen therapists myself. It's been a huge part of healing in my own life. So don't hear me, like, hating on therapy, okay? But, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Most, most therapists say to their clients, you should not de- be dependent on anyone else for your self-worth. Stop listening to those people. And you need to look inside and love yourself. And the irony is that at the very moment they are telling you no one else should have to validate you, they're validating you. We are totally dependent. We are born dependent on voices from the outside, on external affirmation. And some of us have never gotten it. We've never heard words of love and praise over our lives. And it has wreaked havoc on us. Here's another reason why it doesn't work to look inside. 
doesn't work because if you actually do look inside, you will find that there are some things not worth affirming in your life. And this is what John starts to get at in verses 4 through 11. He starts using metaphor of light and darkness. Now, these are major themes throughout the Bible. Light refers to everything that is good and beautiful and true and just and pure. And darkness is the exact opposite. It refers to sin and evil and everything that is wrong with the world. Now, notice this. John calls Jesus the light. We've been talking about it all morning. Jesus is the light of the world. That's part of the message of Christmas. He says in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light refers to Jesus. So who does the darkness refer to? Us. In fact, Jesus says it this way in John chapter 3, verse 19. He says, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Darkness is John and Jesus' way of saying, we are actually not okay just the way that we are. And that's why you cannot look inside to satisfy the longing. If you look inside and you know yourself at all, you will say there is there's selfishness, there's greed, there's vindictiveness, there's twisted desires, there is, there's a slowness to forgive, there's bitterness and resentment, there's a capacity to use and manipulate people rather than to love them and serve them. I mean, if you are at all honest with yourself, you know that there are things about yourself that you should not just accept and affirm. It doesn't work to look inside. So what do we do? We look outside. That's the other approach. We look outside of ourselves. We look to career. We look to money. We look to beauty. We look to relationships. We look to our accomplishments. You know, if you're a parent, you can even look to your kids and how well they've turned out. You can look at any of these things and you look at, look at so many more things to give you a sense of meaning, of worth, of significance, of love and approval. But it does not work. It does not work to look outside yourself. Howard Stern, who's you know, kind of the infamous radio shock jock, uh, in a recent interview, he was talking about his own longing to be loved. And he, he said this, he said, as a kid, my feelings and my difficulties were not on the table and so I buried them. And when I eventually got on the radio and was roaring loud and certainly had everyone tuned into me, I couldn't get enough of it. There was a point in my career where we did research that one out of every four cars in New York City, the largest market in the United States, were listening to me. And when I heard that, I was massively depressed that three of those four cars were not listening to me. So when you want everything and nothing satisfies you, and you only want to be the center of the universe, well, I've learned that I was clearly a starved person. My father was a radio engineer, and he looked at those broadcasters with such reverence. He was so kind and loving toward them, and I think he even worshipped them. And so I said, aha, so that's what you do. You get behind a microphone, and you get everyone listening, and then everyone loves you. Well, that's a sad way to live your life. 
because nobody genuinely loves you then. They appreciate what you do, the entertainment that you give them, but that's not the kind of love that I was looking for. Now here is what he is saying. He's saying it does not work to look outside yourself to satisfy the longing to be loved because that, is, that kind of love is a performative love. It's based on performance. I call this treadmill love. Treadmills are the worst, okay? Let's just be honest. Who likes treadmills? Treadmills exhaust you. You run very hard and you get nowhere. It's treadmill love. You are loved as long as you can keep up. As long as you are successful enough, or beautiful enough, or smart enough, or rich enough, or educated enough, or moral enough, or even religious enough, or as long as you contribute to society enough. Treadmill love is exhausting. It crushes you, it wears you out, and it causes you to crush other people. Because if you base your sense of being loved off of these things, you will constantly be looking down on others who do not perform as well as you. And guess what? You cannot love people as long as you are looking down on them. You cannot love people as long as you think you're superior to them. But that is what performance-based love does. It always creates a sense of inferiority or superiority. And you see, neither of these ways work. Looking outside yourself or looking inside. Neither one can give you the sense of love and affirmation that you long for. So what can The answer is a love that comes to you from the outside. See, we're dependent on that. It comes to you from the outside. It comes from another. But it comes to you not on the basis of anything inside you. It comes to you not on the basis of anything that you have done. It comes to you not on the basis of your own performance. Now, where do we find that? And the answer is we find it in Christmas. We find it in this quintessential passage in John chapter 1 that talks about the incarnation, which is what what Christmas was all about. God coming into this world in human flesh. See, and this brings us to the last point, actually, on why Christmas alone can satisfy this longing. Now, look at verse 12. John says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John says that because of Christmas, we can become children of God. Now you might hear that and think, wait a minute. Isn't every human being a child of God? Isn't every person a child of God? And the answer is actually yes and no. It it is yes in the sense that God created every single person. Religious, irreligious, moral, immoral, rich, poor, Christian, not Christian. Every single person is made in God's image. It is made by God and has inherent dignity and inherent value. Every person is a child of God. And yet, in another sense... No. 
Because a child, think about this, a child is someone who knows that their relationship with their parent is not performative. It is not earned. It is not based on what they have or haven't done. It is based on a status that you can never lose. And because of that, their sense of their parents' love is never in question, but it is always certain. They always know that they're loved. Now, here's the question for you this morning. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? See, it is so easy to come to church think, I need to get a little bit of religion in my life. And I need to kind of clean things up. I need to try harder and I need to do better so that God will love me. It is so easy to base God's love for you on your own performance. Your own performance morally, your own performance spiritually. And when you do that, guess what? Your sense of God's love for you is always in question. You're not relating to God as a child. God is more like a boss than a father to you. You are always hoping that he loves you, but you are rarely certain that he does. Do you know that the gospel offers you something entirely different? It says you don't have to hope God loves you. You can know God loves you. You can have his love and affirmation, which is the ultimate love and affirmation, and it is not performative. You can have it, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done for you. You can become a child of God. You can be adopted into God's family. That's what John is saying in this passage. I heard another pastor tell the story of his own adoption. His mother gave birth when she was 15 years old. And in five years, she had five children with five different men. Growing up, he and his siblings witnessed horrible things until the state finally intervened. They separated he and his siblings from one another. They put them in foster homes, and then things got even worse. He went from one home to another. He talked about how in one home he was forced to eat and drink out of a dog bowl. In another home he saw a man beat his wife to death with a hammer. And it had all sorts of harmful effects on him. He wet the bed until he was 12 years old. And until one foster parent wrapped his soiled sheets around him and made him stand in the school doorway as other kids walked into school to humiliate him. Between the ages of 6 and 12, he was in eight different homes. When he was in the sixth grade, he had the social ability of a five-year-old. And one teacher wrote on his report card, this boy will never amount to anything. He said he grew up feeling like God had abandoned him But in Western Washington, there was a couple in their mid-40s who wanted to adopt a child. They were too old to have kids of their own. And the state gave them a book. And that book had the profiles of 500 teenage orphans. And this woman opened this book and she looked through these pictures 
And in the words of this pastor, she said, for some reason known only to God, she came to my picture and said, that's my boy. And then he, he tells a story like this. He says, I'll never forget that day, Christmas 1959, in eastern Washington on a snowy day, snowy day when this amply built woman came rushing up the sidewalk and folded me in her flesh and said, I love you. That was the first time in my life anyone ever said I love you. I remember the tears running down my face when she asked me this question, would you be my son? Friends, that is the invitation of Christmas. And that is the invitation of this table. It is to be loved as God's child. It's to have the love that you were built for. You were built for love, and not just love from other people. But you were built for the love of God, and you will search, and you will search, and you will search until you find that love and you experience that love. Until it floods into your life. And it can flood into your life. It can flood into anyone's life, no matter how dark your darkness is, the love of God can come crashing into your life. But the only way it can come crashing into your life is through sheer grace. It's not performative. You cannot earn it. All you can do is receive it. And if you've never received it, you can receive it today. It was, it came at the ultimate cost to Jesus, but it is free to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and for the love that is offered to us in it. The love of a God who made us, who created us, and who sees all of the most broken, dark, twisted parts about us, and yet rather than turning away from us, always moves towards us. That is the message of Christmas, that you came into this world for us. So would you give us faith to believe this morning? For some of us, it is so hard to believe that you would love us like this. In fact, if we, if we know ourselves rightly, that's the case for all of us. And yet what this table says to us is that there is no one who's be, who is beyond the reach of your love. So help us to believe that, help us to taste it, help us to drink it, help us to experience it this morning, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.